You're listening to Clouser on Business. Thanks for coming back. I'm Clouser, your host. Glad you're with us today. Over the course of my business career, I've learned that as a business owner and as being a high-level executive, one cannot go it alone. For many reasons, we need help in the areas where we do not have expertise, and it's always wise to get counsel on the major decisions we are facing for the business. One of the keys to success for business decision makers is having the right people in our circles to give us the best advice and to help keep us on the right track with our operating and other business uh, decisions. Honest and transparent trusted advisors are those who can validate your ideas and can be a partner, so to speak, as you move down your business path. I've invited two such people who meet these criteria to discuss how they serve their clients, sharing their insights on what sound what a sound relationship looks like and how a fruitful relationship can lead to success. And we'll also talk about what might go wrong if a business owner or an executive chooses to go it alone. I'm happy to have with me Richard Glassman, an executive with a regional West Coast-based bank, and Gary Furr of Gary Furr Consulting located in Portland, Oregon. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey, Kevin. Good to see Thanks, you. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, you bet. Hey, well, Richard, let's start with you first. Uh, please tell our audience about yourself and how you came into the banking industry. Sure, Kevin. Well, thanks for having me. Um, it's good to see you and, and Gary here, even though we're on the podcast. I, um, I started in banking um, in the early 90s, right after getting my uh, MBA here at um, Portland State. I had moved here from New York. I previously worked for a Swiss bank called Credit Suisse, to be frank, um, but there I actually worked as a trader, not uh, not as a commercial banker. No pun on the being a franc about it, the Swiss franc? The Swiss franc. Um, no, 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 no. Um, it was a different time, different environment. Um, we, we talk a lot about what it was like back then. Um, and um, you know the thing about commercial banking is is that you get to look at a lot of different companies and a lot of different situations um, and you really have to try to be uh, what i would say and i think gary would agree you have to be sort of a lifelong learner to keep up with your customers and the changes in the industry and the economy um, and just what 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 we're seeing here even today there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty so um, so anyway, so I joined U.S. Bank um, at the time uh, on their management training program. Um, worked in different areas of the bank. I worked in commercial banking, and ultimately, I left there and I went to a bank called the Commerce Bank of Oregon, which opened its doors in 2000. And really, at the end of 2005, we moved into our space in 2006, and I've been there as a relationship manager um, ever since. Yeah. So, uh, question. So, when you were, say, coming out of high school, early college, was this what you thought you would be doing, uh, you know, as part of your career, or did you have other aspirations at the time? Well, ironically, um, you know, I, I took a, a couple of different paths. I think that when I was in high school, um, I had different aspirations. And actually, I went to the University of Colorado. Um, initially to get a degree in engineering. It turned out that, that I, uh, I wasn't suited at the time to be an engineering student, but I loved economics. And so I ended up with a degree in economics, and then I went back to New York, um, and I started working for Credit Suisse. And um, as a trader, that was great, but I didn't see 
if you've if you've seen some of the movies that talk about the lifestyle of trading Wall Street back in the 80s or the 70s, um, while that's a fictionalized version, um, there is a kernel of truth in some of that. And many people that went into that industry left it rather young, actually. I think the average age in the trading room at Credit Suisse uh, when I graduated from college was probably in the high 20s, maybe the early 30s. And, um, and so I couldn't see myself doing that. So when I got my MBA, um, I enjoyed that. And mm -hmm. I had worked for the city of Portland as, a, as an accountant, actually, during my mm -hmm. MBA. And I worked for Epson in Portland. Um, and so I had different jobs. Um, I, I didn't see myself as a as a banker really you know going back to your question when i was in high school um but you know life takes its turns yeah yeah you know I, I, you know for me uh it all depends kind of who's around you when you're 18 or 19 years old maybe to help uh, validate certain things i know i would have taken uh, a different <clears throat> different path that there'd been someone said hey kevin go for it you know uh you know clouser you got this talent push it that way or whatever so hey well glad you know glad to have you with us today and uh, you have a family I have uh, two kids um, 23 year old and 18 year old um, and um, my wife and I have been married you know almost 26 years yeah. so good for you we um, you know we live in in southeast Portland and we in, we enjoy ourselves and we have two dogs our son has a dog and a, now a cat and <laughs> we have a fish tank so really, it's 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 been a busy busy time. You you've arrived. <laughs> got, a, got the American dream. Yeah, exactly. Hey, well, thanks, Cats Richard. And a dog and a fish tank. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, thanks, Richard. And uh, again, uh, great to have you on with us today. And uh, Gary, please uh, remind our listeners about yourself. And uh, for those who may be new to the podcast, Gary was on the podcast earlier, uh, sharing about. Uh, one of the books that you've written. Can you refresh our listeners' memory about who you are and what you do? And Happy to do so, Kevin. Thanks for having me again. It's great to be here. Yes, I come from a background of uh, a C-level experience for 40 years. Run, and uh, the last 22 years of that, I ran a $40 million company with seven locations. And uh, I was uh, coming back from Russia and uh, the... August of 2012 and on that flight home from Russia. I'd been there eight days and it took me 29 hours to get home and I decided that life was too short to be working 50, 60 hour work weeks and I decided to do something else. And so I left that business in the fall of 2012 and I started my consulting business in January of 2013. I, originally I thought I might retire but that lasted a couple of weeks and I was already antsy so I knew that that wasn't going to work. So I started my consulting practice in January. Uh, my most mostly my focus is on helping businesses that want to grow top line revenue, and bottom line growth, and increase wealth. Uh, I'm working with a number of clients right now. Most of my work tends to be turnaround projects, so companies that have got into trouble, and I'm helping them get out of trouble. Mm -hmm. I actually like to work with companies that want to grow, but it seems to be that I'm working with companies that are in trouble. Yeah, and uh, you've written a couple books, and maybe you're working on another one. Can you 
talk a little bit about that? Yes, certainly. I, my first book was called It's Not Hard, It's Business. Kind of just basic business principles that you need to be in business because there are some fundamentals that everybody needs to know in order to be successful in business. And that's why I wrote it. So I wrote it for my uh, clients or potential clients or anybody who wants to learn more about business. And it's a it's uh, available on Amazon, or you can go to my website and sign up and download the chapters for free. So I would recommend that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the second book was called Make Your Banker Happy. And the reason I wrote that is that I found that whenever I ask a client, do you know who your banker is? And I always ask. And most of the time they say no. Or if they do say yes, they say, um, I, know, I know my banker. And I say, well, when was the last time you talked to your banker? And there's a pause. And I say, well, it's been a long time. And I'm a firm believer that in order to be successful in business, you have to have a good relationship with your banker. Because business doesn't always go on an upward trend. So business has bumps in in the road and sometimes downward trends. And having a relationship with your banker really helps you to navigate that. So that's Mm -hmm. why I wrote that book. Yeah, I'm going to ask Richard if he's happy because I know you work with maybe a client or two of of his. So, But just joking, Richard. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, Richard is one of the bankers I interviewed for my book. I interviewed 10 bankers on what their best customers do well and what their poor performing customers don't do well. Mm -hmm. And that was the basis for the book. Well, that's great. Hey, well, uh, welcome back. Glad you glad you came back. So, uh, e- each of us, the three of us, uh, you know, we uh, touch our clients in uh, different ways. We have uh, you know particular interests and relationships uh, with them. Obviously, with Richard being uh, in the banking lending industry, and uh, Gary, you being a higher level uh, you know operations consultant, uh, and then myself being in the outsourced accounting and. Uh, uh, placement uh, industry where you know we consult with our clients on uh, various levels from CFO to uh, down to you know controller staff accountant levels but so we're all we're all helping our clients uh, in one way or the other so uh, first question I you know have for us would uh, how how has the pandemic uh, you know the business shutdowns and the payroll protection plan affected your client relationships uh, and Richard I'll start with you first and then uh, let Gary speak to that sure sure Kevin um, <clears throat> so um, you know I don't know I don't, like if I gave um, Gary good advice when he interviewed me in, in his book but I'll, <laughs> you know I, I will say that this is really a very broad question <clears throat> so I, I think that you know we need to look at each one of these things separately there, you know there's the pandemic there's business shutdown and which affected different businesses differently depending on whether they were a consumer-based business or a business-based business, how many employees they had, how many, how closely those employees had to work together. Um, and then the payroll protection plan really do, is kind of off on its own and it has its own attributes and um, it has its own, um, you know, uh, positive aspects and, and, and certainly negative aspects as well. So let me just start by saying that, um, you know, I think the pandemic itself affected everybody. Um, you know, clients had to be concerned about whether they were going to catch the virus, whether their employees were going to catch the virus, whether they would spread it internally, whether they would spread it to their clients. So for many of them, this was a logistical nightmare initially, and they had to deal with it sort of overnight. Um, it's, it was kind of one of those things where, you know, you've heard the phrase, people say, things happen very slowly and then all at once, right? <laughs> yes. So, you know, we were aware that the pandemic was affecting China 
back in you know December and January, and then <clears throat> there was a lot more impact as we moved through January into February. And many companies didn't actually see an impact um, really until the end of February, early March, um, and then in mid March, the governor shut pretty much shut down the economy. Um, it was part of her plan to try to you know, uh, mitigate the spread, if you will. <clears throat> um, and that had a really serious impact for clients that were, say, in the restaurant business who couldn't, they couldn't serve any customers. So if you looked at that, at what happened then, the companies that owned the buildings that they operated out of, they were in one class of company, right? right? If they were renting and they were renting more than one location, that was much more difficult. And if they owned the building and they had a mortgage on it, and it was a high mortgage, that was one class of customer. If they owned the building and their monthly payments were low, and they went into that period with a high amount of cash, then they were able to make it through and they were able to ask for loan deferrals and loan deferments and things like this. Um, <clears throat> and then, um, you know, so, so the commercial customers that were considered essential businesses, they tended to be okay, not great. You know, companies in the construction industry had to change the way they do business. Um, Companies that that were that were restaurants were tried to they tried to pivot and do takeout, right? Some of them they were successful. Some of them they were less so. Uh, but pretty much everybody saw revenues decline. I think. Um, and then and then I, and I think you know I, I should I should let um, Gary kind of speak to the to these issues because I I think he's also seen them. And I think if we were to bring in some business owners themselves their perspectives would be much more on point and they would be much more accurate than, than my generalizations. Um, the payroll protection plan, um, that, you know, that really helped a lot of businesses keep people on staff. So, for example, we had clients that were able to rehire employees right away. Um, there were also businesses that, due to the payroll protection plan, they were able to bring people back um, and put them and put them to work doing things um, that that proved to be very successful in some areas. So, you know, when 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 the governor shut things down, there were a lot of people that became unemployed immediately. Mm -hmm. But when the government stepped in with the CARES Act and people were getting these extra payments. You know, they were trying to figure out how do we spend our time, how do we spend our money, and they pivoted in the way that they spent their money. So some businesses that were aligned with those activities, um, they did very well. But some of the businesses were able to do very well specifically because they took advantage of the PPP program and they hired workers that met that demand immediately mm -hmm. because some of them were concerned do we want to really bring these salespeople back or do we want to wait? Um, and PPP gave them the confidence to bring back employees that they would otherwise have probably let go. Mm -hmm. And having the extra employees helped them meet the demand in the market. Um, so from a standpoint of, of being able to bring workers back and keep them on the payroll, that was obviously a very beneficial thing for lots of businesses. Um, 
and 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 and, and clearly, I, th I think Gary has some comments as well. But um, but I think that you know, on the whole, getting the money out the door and into the business owner's hands was a very good thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hey, Gary, what uh, what's your perspective or take on this? And uh, well, I think pre-pandemic business was really doing really well and uh, businesses were making a lot of money and it was like driving your car and hearing a, hitting a brick wall at 80 miles an hour business came to a, an abrupt halt uh, if you were following good business practices pre-pandemic uh, i think you probably could have weathered the um, the pandemic pretty well if you were not following good business practices not sticking to the fundamentals most businesses got into trouble uh, one of the main things i've seen uh, is that businesses that were in tax avoidance previously who were you know paying out all their their profits in terms of bonuses and things like that who didn't save any cash because they were trying to avoid tax didn't have any cash reserve and i think that came back to bite them during the pandemic mm -hmm. uh, so because business um, basically a lot of businesses shut down luckily for me all my clients were considered essential services so while it had an effect uh, it didn't cause them to shut down completely. In fact, one of my clients, a turnaround project I'm, I'm working on, made more money during the pandemic than they've ever made mm -hmm. <laughs> in business. So they were pretty happy about that. And uh, it had to do the way we positioned the business uh, mm -hmm. and things like that. Uh, all of my clients got PPP money, and I think that was helpful to them because uh, they were able to have some cash extra cash to pay their employees and help weather the storm a little bit i think that businesses have to be careful though in that moving forward you know you may get to the end of the year and and finances look good or the financials look good but you got to remember that you had a big chunk of money that you received ppp right. money you can't count on that for next year right some oxygen in the yeah. business right uh talking a little bit further about the ppp funding um and uh, where I want to kind of go with this, and this is this was an observation that I that's my own, so I don't want to make a general statement here. But it it, it appeared to me that uh, those businesses that had a good banking relationship, uh, and what I meant was they they were in touch with their banker, their relationship manager, communication was good. There just seemed to be maybe a uh, partnership type of relationship there. Uh, so my you know. My question to you two is, uh, from your guys' perspective, you know, what role did having that good banking relationship have for maybe expediting the PPP, uh, you know, loan applications and maybe some, you know, maybe maybe being proactive with helping their business client? Richard, you like to go first on that, or um, sure. So, so um, I, I think if you think back to when PPP was introduced, it was it was legislated and passed um, really quickly and they and they gave really it was a finite amount of money that they hadn't yet reloaded initially and they said hey this is going to be on a first come first serve basis so a lot of business owners around the country who said we we need this money but it's first come first serve so we want to be first in the door well <clears throat> That created a huge problem, really, for the industry because if you remember, the legislation was passed like midweek, and they said the money will be available Friday. So, and it wasn't really available till either the Friday after that or the or the following Friday. Um, so banks had to build a model to figure out how to get all this money out the door. Um, 
and that created a lot of stress for business owners, right? Business owners were thinking, well, we think we need the money. Um, do we have a relationship with our bank? Who is our banker? You know, so the very large banks that have millions of customers, millions of business customers, um, it was much more difficult for them to get this process working. Uh, we're a smaller bank, you know, we're a regional bank, so um, I work for Zions Bank, which is based out of Utah, and in Oregon, we're called the Commerce Bank of Oregon. Um, and we actually built a model ourselves, really on our team, using the expertise of the parent company. Um, and what that meant is effectively that the people in my office worked, you know, till nine o'clock at night for that first week, you know, every day of the week, um, putting something in place. And what you found was that most of the small businesses that banked with a smaller bank, a community bank, a smaller regional bank, um, you know, they know who their banker is. Mm -hmm. They know who the people in the office are. They probably know who the senior managers are. Um, I believe that most of those companies that bank with the smaller banks, they all got their PP loans, their PPP loans in the first go around before mm -hmm. it was reloaded. There were some clients that weren't sure they wanted to participate and they came in later. But that's why I think that you saw a number of clients who banked with larger banks, they weren't getting that response from the larger bank because if you remember, companies like Wells Fargo and Bank of America, because they had to build a model from scratch that could accommodate millions of applications, they didn't have, they just didn't, they weren't able to do that right off the bat mm -hmm. like the smaller banks were. Yeah, that's good insight. Um, you know, in the at the end of the day, Zions Bank also was able to automate its process, and it processed about forty six thousand of these loans. So, um, big the numbers really are quite large, and um, but we were able to do all of our clients uh, who wanted one, and then we were able to do a, an equal number of uh, prospects and other companies that just couldn't get a response from mm -hmm. the larger bank. It wasn't that ultimately they may not have been able to get one, it's just because of the uncertainty and mm -hmm. the fact that the pie was finite and there were only so many dollars to go around. I mean, we know now, you know, in hindsight, that the program was funded to the tune of about $630 billion, but only about $521 billion was actually accessed through kind of mid-August. So. There was room, but because of the way the program was rolled out and because of the uncertainty, you know, businesses, business owners did what they felt they needed to do. Mm -hmm. And that meant, hey, if I can get my application processed through the Commerce Bank of Oregon, then I'm going to do that. Yeah. If I can get it processed through another community bank, then I'm going to do that rather than wait for the larger bank. Because as Gary said, if you don't have a good relationship with your bank, if you don't have that trust, then you you lose the perspective. And you know what? Um, it's it's those business owners wanted to know that the money was there. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Yeah. Uh, absolutely true. It's a testament to my book that you want to make your banker happy, really. And uh, because in my book, I explain that uh, you need to have that relationship uh, with your banker during good times, right? Not and not wait till bad times. If you wait until the um, bad times in the PPP loan program, you didn't know your banker, you probably weren't on, on the front of the line. I'll give you a perfect example. My my youngest son lives in Boston. He has his own business and 
he's 40 now, he's a millionaire at age 35. He went to borrow, get PPP money from a big bank. He has no debt, no loans, money in the bank. And they said, no, we can't do it. You don't have a loan with us. <laughs> so I, was kinda, I said, well, here's the reason why you need to have that relationship with the small to mid-market banks where you're interacting with a banker who probably lives in your community, has been there for a long time, knows their customers, and knows your business, and they can work with you and help you to be successful. So it's, I think it's critical to your success. And the PPP money and the whole pandemic experience is a testament to having that relationship with your banker before we entered the, the downturn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that uh, moves me to my next question, maybe my next two questions, because they're kind of related. So uh, again, uh, what might what might businesses need to be doing, business owners in particular, need to be doing, uh, uh, you know, just addressing business in general within the times that we're uh, living in? And then if you, have you seen some good examples of how, uh, you know, I guess the words pivot these days, but how businesses have maybe changed their operations or have had to change their operations uh, in order to position themselves to come out successful, uh, you know, after the, what we're going through, uh, you know, comes to an end. I think that, uh, like I said, uh, businesses need to be focused on the fundamentals. And one of the most important fundamentals is you have to understand your financials because the numbers drive everything in your business. And businesses or business owners who became complacent uh, when they were making lots of money really need to get down and get back to the fundamentals and pay attention to their financials and the numbers and be evaluating those on a weekly basis. You can't just go quarterly. I, you know, I have a client that uh, normally during the spring of the year, they have a big festival for an entire month where customers come to their facility and to view their products and buy and and they couldn't do that this year so we had to pivot uh, a 90 degree sharp right turn essentially and we had to go virtual with it and that virtual uh, um, business uh, process was challenging at first but once we got it figured out they actually j doubled their revenue in the same month of the year from what they typically did during that month so I think that you know, we have to get out, we get complacent, we get stuck in a rut, you know, and as business owners, and if you're staying in that rut and not looking at how to get out of it, you're gonna be in trouble coming out of the pandemic. So being flexible, thinking out ahead, having a clear vision on where you wanna go, and then really, really dial in to the numbers of your business. Mm -hmm. uh, Richard, how about you? Uh, seeing any, what are you seeing out there on how maybe uh, owners are looking at their businesses differently and, um, you know, anything come to mind as far as a success story where someone's... You know, um, you know Kevin, I, I, I agree with what Gary said, that um, that some of the businesses uh, entered this period in a really good... Um, with really good characteristics, really good balance sheet characteristics, really good revenue characteristics. Um, and, and, I, and, and it goes back to, you know, one of the things that we look at is we look at the management team. Um, is the management team, you know, are they qualified? Are they skilled, experienced? Um, you know, do they have, do they really know what really drives the business? What are the levers to improve cash flow, to reduce inventory, to, you know, control the aspects of the business that have the largest financial impact? Um, 
and, and do they have a plan in place? Um, you know, Gary talked about clients uh, pivoting because, you know, certain channels may not be available to them for revenue and certain financing options may have changed. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that, that um, you know, one of the things that happened in the pandemic, really that's happened since the economic downturn is that, so if you think back 10 or 12 years ago, um, and we went through this really horrible financial crisis, a lot of the financial institutions around the country learned a lot of lessons about what sectors of the economy posed the most risk to them, and how do they mitigate that risk. So those lessons haven't been forgotten. And so the availability of credit for businesses who don't manage their internal risks got tighter. And you know, one of the things that we used to say back in the 90s, we used to say the, that it was more important to have access to credit than what you had to pay for it. You know, whether you had to pay, you know, whether it was a difference of 25 or 50 basis points. Um, and there were a lot of companies, as Gary said, that went into the downturn that had really sought out and obtained the very lowest possible rates they could get. Um, but then when their financial performance started to deteriorate, they found that additional credit at those same rates, or even additional credit at all, was just not available in some cases. Mm -hmm. um, and it also goes back to you know Gary's comments about, do you know your financial institution? Do they understand your company? Do they understand what drives your company? And, and when you go to them and say, hey, you know what? We're having a pandemic. Things have changed. Um, we need you to work with us on restructuring our loans. Can you do that? Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that financial institutions really like to see is not just that question, but then what's the plan, right? How do you plan to make it through this period? What do you think things will look like coming out? And then, and then what are you going to do going forward, right? Now, unfortunately, none of us really know, right? And, and even me as a banker, I have to ask, hey, um, so, okay, so we're going through this period now. What are you going to do? And they say, well, I don't know. Um, and that's, and that's, well, well, actually, well, actually it's a start, right? It's, it always starts with, I don't know, but then you have to kind of look at what your, what your attributes are. Okay. So we've got, you know, we're in this market, we sell this product, this is working, this isn't working. Here are some other avenues. Build a plan, build a plan that you think makes the most sense and then build a backup plan and then, and then go talk to your financial advisor about it. You know, find out, uh, go and seek out your advisors, your contract CFO, your business advisor, and sit down and go through all of these steps. What do you think will work? What has worked in the past? Maybe it's time to put some chips down in a new area that mm -hmm. you haven't tried before. You know, you can't bet the farm on that stuff, but, but you can say, what are we going to do that's different? Mm -hmm. What are we going to do that we haven't done it before and what have we done in the past that didn't work so you know one of the things that we talk about here is um and i was reminded of this kind of the other day um and someone said um 
and I, and I, and I, I don't know who initially said it, but you know, don't waste a good crisis. Yeah. Right. So there are a number of businesses out there that had areas of the business that may not have been performing that well, or that may have been performing adequately, but the but the owners couldn't figure out whether to continue that business. Mm -hmm. But now there's no question about the decision about what to do going forward, mm -hmm. right? So uh, a good example is I have a, a client who has a couple of different business lines, and he was talking with his CFO, and the CFO was telling him about the performance of one of their divisions. And this is a division that he's been considering shutting down. He's been supporting it for a couple of years. Um, and the numbers came in where he his comment to me was that, I like it when the decisions are easy. Meaning, he's not happy about the decision he has to make, but it's easy because the numbers don't support a different decision, right? Um, and, and while that means he's gonna have to focus and produce a new plan, it actually means he's going to make progress, mm -hmm. right? So, um, you know, in in regard to the Gary's comments about uh, about structuring your balance sheet correctly and having the right people in the right seats, these are all things that um, that businesses can can really focus on, and and as long as they have a good plan, um, they will be able to find support. Yeah, it's good business practices that they need to be focused on. It's interesting because in my turnaround projects, we always evaluate where we're at, and then we evaluate where do we need to go, and we come up with a plan. And often I go to the bank with my client to explain the plan and what we plan to do to make the change, to turn things around. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Uh, so both of you touched on uh, an important element, uh, both in good times and uh, not so good times with. Uh, with uh, businesses' financial statements. Um, uh, again, I, I hate to ask such general questions because I don't want to put you in a box, but at the same time, can you talk a little bit about the importance of a business owner uh, really understanding what the balance sheet and an income statement is telling them to where they can talk uh, and carry on a conversation, whether you know it's with with a bank or with uh, maybe an investor or maybe a board, you know, a board of directors. Uh, how important is that? Well, it's a, <laughs> I always just, you know, I used to love to eat at this restaurant called the Harry Lobster and I loved it because the chef was an amazing cook and actually Richard has eaten there and I believe you've eaten there yeah. too, Kevin. And it was, it was just an amazing. And as you watch them cook, you realize they understand the language of cooking. They understand cups and teaspoons and tablespoons and pinches and everything like that and that's what makes it such good food well as a business owner you need to understand the language of business which is accounting you don't need to be an accountant but you have to understand the the language so you have to understand the PL and the balance sheet and the cash flow projection and I describe it like I used to fly an airplane for my previous company I flew for 22 years and oftentimes you know when you're learning to fly you have to learn to fly by instruments and their instruments on the dashboard, or you know, whether you're doing um, instrument-rated flight or visual flight rules, you have to know it to be able to read the instruments because they, they're a matter of saving your life. And I describe that in terms of business, that the instruments on your business dashboard are the P&L. 
the balance sheet and the cash flow projection and you have to understand them and you have to be able to read those and understand how they interact in order to be as successful at business. Rich, think, Richard, I, what say you? <laughs> uh, I think, uh, you know, Gary's right. You, you, you have to know your way around the financial statements. And, um, you know, Kevin, obviously you do this every day, but, yeah. but for many business owners, um, it's, it, and many of them came up through the business and they've poured over their own financial statements, you know, a million times. Um, and, and what happens is they tend to focus on certain aspects of the business. Um, and sometimes it's good just to bring in an outsider to look at it and say, what do you think? So one of the things that, that I think is important is that you have to understand how the, how the three statements, the balance sheet, the income statement, and the statement of cash flows, how they all flow together. How a change in revenues flows through the income statement and would impact the balance sheet. How changes in working capital impact the amount of cash that might be available. You know, um, when I started in banking, we used to say that, you know, businesses could fail if they don't have enough revenues, but they could also fail if they have too much revenues. Right? And the idea that a business could fail if it's got too much revenues has become sort of an anathema because we haven't seen that lately. Mm -hmm. And what business owners don't understand is that if, if they get a huge increase in revenue and then there's a hiccup and they don't have revenue following that, that's when they have become very over-levered and they just end up with too much short-term debt on their balance sheet and they haven't thought about it yeah. and that can push them into bankruptcy and you know for those of us who are older we all heard stories growing up um, in school or in graduate school where they talked about very large companies that back in the 50s and 60s would go to smaller manufacturers and place very very large orders and they and they would place these orders knowing full well that the company would have to strain tremendously to produce that kind of product and after the company bought all the inventory the the major player whether it was Sears or Ford or some other company that you may have heard of they would cancel the order right and it would push those companies into bankruptcy um, and whether they did it intentionally or not it's a big risk and mm -hmm. it's one of the um, and we haven't talked about it specifically, but and it's a little off topic about balance sheets, but we did talk about concentration risk as well, mm -hmm. right? And that's that risk, it's, a, um, it's an example of that risk. But knowing your way around the financial statements, you know, anybody that's going to provide assistance to the company financially, or even a big supplier is going to want to see the company's financial statements mm -hmm. and they're going to want to see that there's enough working capital that there's enough equity that there is consistent earnings that basically if i'm going to buy from you if i'm going to place a large order with your company i want to make sure that you can actually produce it yeah. can you buy the materials and keep them on hand so if i'm a raytheon or an l3 or a Boeing, and you come and you say, well, you know, we've got this great new widget, we want you to include it in your airplane, we're going to be a little skeptical before we buy from you. Yeah. Likewise, if you come to me and you say, we want to place a big order for your product, 
right? You might want to make sure that I can actually produce it, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, and it works throughout the supply chain. Um, and, and it's just, it's, it's, it is very important. Yeah. yeah. Inventory can kill a business so easily because when I think what business owners don't understand when they have all this inventory, and yeah, it shows up on the balance sheet, but it's the use of cash. Yeah. And when you don't, you need cash. And if it's all tied up in inventory, it's not liquid. Yeah. I used to own a distribution company, and every time I'd, I'd park on the backside of the warehouse, come through the warehouse to my office, and every time I seen, the same piece of equipment on that shelf week after week you know i always looked at it it was stacks of uh dollar dollars, dollars yeah. out there on on the shelf yeah and inventory is one of those cursed things that either you've got too much or you don't have enough yeah that's very true yeah a follow-up to uh, for both of it to what richard was talking about uh and this is uh, something i find uh, with some of uh, the clients that i serve is there seems to be a misunderstanding or uh and, and it's not because they're ignorant. They, it's it's an understanding accounting and financial reporting, but just the importance of having accrual-based gap financial statements. Mm -hmm. uh, can you both speak a little bit uh, for those who might be listening? This is why Kevin, when Kevin tells you something that, <laughs> listen to Clouser. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, accrual, you know, we have two options, right? Cash-based yeah. accounting or accrual-based yeah. accounting. The problem with cash-based accounting is that your when you look at your balance sheet it's not taking into account inventory and accounts receivable so you may have a lot of accounts receivable but you're not accounting for it and you're not accounting for your inventory and i've i you and i have a mutual connection that we both worked with that was not accounting for inventory on their balance sheet and so they would go to the bank and and try to borrow money and they didn't have any equity but they had a lot of inventory that we weren't accounting for so i always recommend that a business do accrual-based accounting, although there's a lot of businesses, service industry and agriculture that does cash-based accounting. Mm -hmm. There are, um, so we, clearly we have a bias. We like accrual-based accounting because we feel it, it shows you what your liabilities and your assets are. So Gary talked about accounts receivable. The, this is product that you've delivered to clients, but you haven't yet been paid and they're, they're accounts receivable that hopefully you will collect in the near future. But you also have payables, you have bills that you've received, and you may or may not have written them checks, but those are real liabilities to the company and they impact the financial condition of the company. Um, it, it's, it, it goes in concert with another concept. So you talked about a distribution company. So a distribution company, you're buying the product from the manufacturer, you're sticking it on your shelf, and you're selling it to a third party. But let's say that you're a different kind of company where you buy the product, you make something, and when you sell it, you get paid immediately. But you don't have to pay for, so if you're a bakery, for example, and you make bread, bread is a highly perishable item. And so when you sell it, you're gonna make, wanna make sure that you get paid within three or seven days. But you might buy the flour from someone and not have to pay them for 30 days. So you get the money and you get to hang on to it for a couple of weeks before you have to disperse it. So you have what's called a negative working capital requirement versus a distribution company that has a positive working capital requirement. Um, and those businesses need to be looked at differently and analyzed differently. Um, and, and you know, a lot of people that grow up in those industries, they understand that 
because that's what they do every single day. Mm-hmm. But third parties don't always. Oh well, I don't. You know, I don't understand this. What's going on? Um, it's important to people know how this affects their balance sheet and their income statement. Um, and their statement of cash flow. Yeah, and that, that's a good point too, because there there are some uh, industry-specific accounting uh, rules, uh, you know, like construction accounting, for instance, where uh, you know work in process or progress uh, percentage of completion, percentage of completion, and uh, you know, so people need to be aware of that too, uh, especially the readers of the you know the financial statements. But it's uh, something that too that. Uh, business owners struggle with, uh, and again, nothing you know, nothing out of ignorance. It's just understanding what what that whip schedule, how it affects, and when it gets reconciled to the uh, financial statements, what effect that'll have on their operations and their uh, bottom line. Right, so. and you, um, and and one of the things that you that we haven't really touched on is, you know, we we talked about PPP and the pandemic, and that has created really a whole sea change in the way businesses are, are thinking about business, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, six months ago or nine months ago, everybody had a just-in-time supply chain. But now people are saying, well, do we need a just-in-time supply chain or do we need a just-in-case supply chain? Mm-hmm. Um, those are different metrics and different levels of working capital and different levels of liquidity. You know, um, Gary talked about the clients of his that have strong cash and liquidity balances. Those companies are in a really good position. Um, And so, you know, in order to build a just-in-case supply chain, that probably means you need to have more things on hand. Mm -hmm. Um, And that means you need to have stronger, a stronger balance sheet, more equity, more liquidity um, to manage through that. I think we saw a good and you bring a really good point, this just-in-time inventory. We saw an example of how that affected the supply chain when uh, people were buying toilet paper and hoarding toilet paper, and the supply chain had been a just-in-time system, and they were, they didn't have the supply. Mm-hmm. And so the, the whole supply chain got backed up. <laughs> well, I have, a, I have one client that uh, sources. He's a, a light manufacturer, but some of his uh, raw materials come offshore. So it's been a, a big change up uh, on a lot of fronts, uh, you know, for this client, not only the uh, additional cost of freight and duty, but also just the uh, having to order differently in order to order far enough out in order to, sure. uh, you know, account for all the, you know, the delays and everything. Yeah, so there's a lot that uh, business owners are uh, really confronted with. And uh, Richard started to uh, talk about uh, cash and equity a little bit. So uh, that was uh, one of my one of my final questions. Here was you know you know it's uh, kind of a trite saying now. I think cash is king. Gary says maybe cash is an ace or something. I think you <laughs> talked about that a little bit, did you not? Or? I did. I wrote a, a blog post on that. That cash isn't king. It's the ace because the ace is more important than the king. <laughs> yeah, well, I told, and I told Gary, I said, you know, in some card games, uh, aces are low. So I said, you better, you know, be sure you qualify. Oh, he said, don't play cards. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but anyway, so, uh, you know, having ample cash on hand, um, you know, both in good and bad times, uh, what's your thoughts on, where does that put a, a business when, you know, there's ample cash and where does it not put somebody when they're cash strapped? Well, I kind of brought this up in the beginning of our conversation that I find too many businesses are in tax avoidance mode and not wealth creation. 
um, and so they don't have any cash. I'm a firm believer that a, at a minimum, every business needs to have three months of cash reserve for operating expenses because there are always going to be bumps in the road and we need to have some sort of cash reserve that we can fall back on and i don't mean by having a credit line i don't mean by having money you can borrow from the bank but actually having real cash in the bank that you can fall back on so minimum three ca three months cash reserve for operating expenses i think is a must for every business Mm-hmm. What say you, Richard, on that topic? Well, that um, I, I would agree with Gary. I, I would augment that, though, and I'd say that um, <clears throat> that it is important biz for businesses to have access to credit because not all businesses in their life cycle, you know, where they are, have the ability to have three months worth of operating mm -hmm. cash. Um, I think it's a good it it's a good practice. I don't know that every business has the ability to do that, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly we know that large, um, if you look across the economy, hospitals have tremendous amounts of cash. They keep about somewhere between three months and six months of cash on their balance sheet, really, at all times. Um, and then there's other, there's other businesses that would like to keep cash, but their margins are so thin that it takes a very long time to accrue that kind of cash, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, um, grocery stores, for example, their profit margins are, you know, 1%. Yeah. They don't have a lot of cash. They operate on leverage. They operate on um, volume. And, um, you know, one of the things that's happened during the pandemic is, is that the velocity of money has declined dramatically because people are, consumers are not spending money because they, they can't go out they're they're not going to movies they're not you know they're not doing the normal things they normally do so there is a tremendous growth in in the money supply um, primarily but um, you know hopefully when we start to kind of open up the economy this money will start flowing through the economy and we'll see we'll see more businesses be able to build up their cash that they've been depleting mm -hmm. over the last six months. Yeah, I, I, I kind of, uh, not kind of, I coach my clients, uh, and again, both uh, in good times as well, but, you know, having cash on hands really puts you in a, in a great place when an opportunity comes up uh, that might just be, one, an opportunity that is a great opportunity and it's not going to be there next week. What, any thoughts on that, Gary? Or? Well, you know, I love what Tony Robbins says in his book, Money, Master the Game. He said the best time to to invest is when there's blood in the streets and in order to do that you got to have cash so opportunities come along and like you say kevin and the best time to take advantage of those when you do have some cash reserves that you can invest in those opportunities to grow your business mm -hmm. yeah i agree, I agree. no you, and i, I think cash, you can take risk I, yeah and I, exactly you can take more risk and i agree with you uh, richard in terms of having that credit line in place uh, a business does need a credit line in place because like you know businesses go ebbs and flows and the idea of the credit line is to help even those out it's not a, meant to be a long-term debt it's meant to even out the, the lows and then pay it back and so you can s skate through those periods of time so i think having a credit line is critical to your business yeah that's success. yeah and i think uh you know this can be another uh podcast force that you and i've talked about it previously gary and i know richard deals with it every day but uh, you know, I've, again, coached clients that the, you know, the bank line of credit is not something you borrow on and then uh, straight line it, you know, <laughs> across time. The, the bank wants, uh, you know, what I'd describe somewhat of a sine wave 
you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, borrow, borrow it, you pay it down, uh, because like you said, it shouldn't just be enough funding to get you through that working capital cycle. Mm-hmm. When I buy my goods and I turn it into cash when I collect what I sold and whatever that is between there. But I, I, see, I see two extremes. I see people who borrow money and do what I described earlier is, let's say they have a million dollar line and they go borrow close to a million dollars on it and then they never pay it back or they don't pay, make payments on it. Right. Then I've got the other people that have the credit facility that then they don't use it when they really should be using it in certain situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, we yeah, we can talk about that later. Any, th- any thoughts on that line of credit? Mm-hmm. I, I think there's a reason that banks call it a revolving line of credit. <laughs> <laughs> they want it to revolve. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, for your clients who borrow a million and then leave it on the line, the banker who manages that then has to explain inside the bank why effectively is this line frozen at a million dollars, right? I mean, remember banks are loaning money that's not theirs. So if, if, if I was Gary's neighbor and he came to me and he said, hey, um, can you lend me a million dollars? my wife would say, wait, you're gonna, you're, you know, if I had a million dollars to give him, she'd be like, you're gonna give it all to Gary? What's the risk in that, in that transaction? Well, as a bank, that's sort of what we're doing. We, we have to identify, you know, how Gary's gonna use the money, and then how he's gonna pay it back. Tropical vacation. Right? And if he says, you know, well, tropical vacation, you know. Is, yeah. <laughs> Oh, extended travel in Vegas, right? <laughs> so, um, no, but uh, you know, banks have really. Um, it's there's three questions we have to answer. You know, when we make a loan, we have to say, we have to talk about the company and the market, why we're going to loan them the money, what they're going to use it for, and how they're going to pay it back. Effectively, you know, those three questions can be answered in as long a format or short a format as possible, but effectively the money that we're lending Gary is other people's money. And the reason that they give us their money so we can loan it out is because the FDIC insures it, right? The FDIC says, we'll let you put our sticker on your door and and you can insure the deposits under us so you can make loans to Gary, but if you want to do that, you have to tell us how you're going to make a loan and how you're going to monitor that loan and how you're going to manage that loan. So relationship managers like me, you know, our bias is that we want Gary's company to do as well as possible, sure. yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that he can perform and grow and pay his employees and really contribute to the economic viability of our community. Mm-hmm. And also, and also pay, repay their loan when it comes due, right? Yeah. So that line of credit, we want to make sure that it revolves because if it doesn't revolve, if it's frozen, then the question is, is under what circumstances did we give it to him? What did he say he was going to use it for? And is he actually doing what he said he would do? Because those are all, those are all important mm-hmm. things because the, the, remember the people that do what I do, we represent Gary inside the company and we represent the company to Gary. So we're in some respects we work for the bank, but in some respects we're we're the outward facing portion of that. Mm-hmm. So um, we want to make sure that those loans 
aren't performing. So if it's frozen, then that's in, that comes to a question of what did the company actually use the money for? Is it productive? And are they really generating the kind of returns that they said? Now, the one thing that's important with credit lines is that when, when you look at a credit line, you only owe interest technically, right? So if you use the credit line to buy working capital to support accounts receivable, so think about working, you know, accounts receivable in terms of Gary has 40 employees, they get paid every other week, but his customer isn't going to pay him for another 60 days. So every two weeks he's paying these employees and he's borrowing from his line of credit to pay those employees and then he has an accounts receivable that he suddenly gets paid on. Now if he doesn't use the, re the return from that accounts receivable to pay down the line but uses it for some other purpose, then the bank is going to say, well you collected your accounts receivable, right? Hopefully what you paid your employees was less than what you collected from the accounts receivable. That's your some of your profit margin. But hopefully there's enough to pay down the debt. But if you don't pay down the debt and you use the money for some other purpose, then then the money's not there mm -hmm. now, right? To repay the loan. And so from a financial perspective, the bank is is now saying, well, where does that how, then how does that company actually pay that money off? Yeah. Right? Because they use it for something else. And then, but, but business owners wouldn't do that, though, would they? <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I, I, sorry. I don't know. I, yeah, you know, say, I don't yeah. know. But, um, uh, the answer to that question is some would. Well, I, I, I think well, that's the reason why he's talking about it. <laughs> no. More than we probably care to have it happen. Well, actually, I don't, I'm not really sure that's the case. I think that, you know, in, in, in my sector of the market, most of the business owners are pretty sophisticated. They have good CFOs like you, Kevin. Mm -hmm. They you. have good advisors like Gary. They don't do these things. Yeah. But when I talk about the people who insure our deposits, remember, um, now we're at we're a regional bank, sort of a national charter, so we're regulated by the office of the controller of the currency, mm -hmm. and they get to come in whenever they want and look at our loan files, right? And they may not look at any of my loans; they may look at some, but but they get to come in and look at individual files to make sure that when we make that loan to Gary's company, that we're following all the rules that we told them we would follow when they gave us that insurance, mm -hmm. right? So if we say we're gonna use cash flow as a metric, right? We're gonna wanna make sure that the company generates sufficient cash flow to service their debt. People that know me know I use this term all the time, sufficient cash flow to service their debt. Um, if we don't demonstrate that, then they're gonna go not to me, but to somebody else in the bank who probably has some authority over me, and they're gonna say, hey, you guys said you would make sure that your customers have sufficient cash flow to service their debt. And if they don't, then you're gonna to have to put up a little bit more capital as a financial institution against this loan, mm -hmm. which affects our earnings, right? Because yeah. at the end of the day, everybody's in business for, you know, to make money, because we're all capitalists. Yeah. And, and, and we believe in the capitalist model, right? right. We want to 
run a well-run business, we want to make money. Our clients want to make money. So we want to help, as bankers, we want to help our clients make as much money as, yeah. as they can. That's all, that's all well said, and I, I'm, I'm going to have to have you two back because you, talk, you touched on a lot of different things about, you know, one, one thing is, hey, we're in business to make a profit. I mean, if you're not in business to make a profit, if you're working for a for-profit op operation, then you probably got some need to, need to redo some thinking there, but we're almost out of time. I got one final question for both of you. Uh, so uh, for the future, and I know we don't know what the future may bring, but uh, we can maybe go by history a little bit. Uh, obviously, we're in uh, different economic times. We've seen a lot of money pumped into the economy to you know to keep it going. You know, I uh, you know being a little bit older, uh, I didn't seen this happen before is I know that somehow we're going to the government's going to want money back uh, pricing's probably you know maybe inflation sets in what you know whatever that is can you give me a quick answer uh, start with you Gary on maybe what your thoughts are on that and you know I know that uh, we're not economic advisors to the government but uh, we may might see some things well I think that you know the business strategy coming in the pandemic and the business strategy coming out of the pandemic may be different. So the strategy you had for your business coming into the pandemic uh, probably worked well, and now we've gone through this business disruption, and I think we probably re need to reevaluate that. And I describe strategy as a really simple formula. Find a need, fill the need, and collect a check. Don't screw it up in the middle. Uh, and my mean finding the need is that's communicating with your customer and your client on what is it that they need and make sure that what they need now coming out of the pandemic and the economic downturn is the same thing needed thing they needed when they went in we went into that and if it's it may have changed and if you're not out there communicating with your client and engaging them to find out what it is they really need you may be in trouble and then once you find out that need is we need to organize our businesses to supply or meet that need in the most efficient effective way possible i think a reevaluation of that strategy is critical as we come out of the pandemic okay well said and uh, richard i'll let you have the final thoughts on this topic no i i agree with gary um you know i i, I think that uh, business owners and and you know people in business they want to make sure that um, and, and I think everyone's really trying to do this, figure out, you know, what is it we do that adds value? How do we convey that value to our clients? Um, is there more value we can provide? Um, and are there more, um, you know, are there more opportunities out there, things we've learned that we do really well during the pandemic um, that we can broaden when things ease up a little bit? Okay. Yeah, I think that's excellent. Yeah. Hey, well, we're out of time for today, and I want to thank uh, my guests Richard Glassman and Gary Furr for the great discussion uh, today regarding, uh, you know, those big business topics we have out there with everything going on. I hope uh, our discussion uh, is of help or was of help to you, especially to you business owners that might uh, continue to be concerned on how things are going to play out. I appreciate you being with us today. Uh, remember, you can find us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher. Podbean, and other podcast platforms, and always at clouseronbusiness.com. Be sure to tell your friends about us. All for now, you've been listening to Clouser on Business. <laughs>